Okay, so it's a very, very long parak, so I feel like I gotta get started right away. It's like 52 psukim. It's crazy. So we'll see what we can do with it. Okay, so we're gonna screen share. And I'm gonna look at this. Okay. So we start here, usually. It's chapter 14. Now, chapter 14 and chapter 13 are two halves of a whole. They go together. And chapter 13 is the beginning of the main war with the Philistines, with uh, Shaul fought. And if we go backwards, just to review chapter 13, we basically establish in chapter 13 that the Jewish people are in a big mess, right? If we go backwards for a second, Right, you see that um, Yonatan starts things off by attacking the Philistine governor, and that's not something that seems to be coordinated with Shaul. And this becomes the beginning of a clear kind of rift that happens between Shaul and Yonatan that we're gonna keep an eye on that expands and deepens in chapter 14. They have very different ways of looking at things. But Yaratan goes ahead and he, he assassinates this Pushti overlord and the Jewish people are thrown into a war that they're not actually prepared for. And they respond by running away. They run into, they hide, they run across the Jordan and um, Shaul goes down to Gilgal and over there, he's supposed to wait for Shmuel and he messes up because he doesn't wait for Shmuel and uh, he cannot bear the pressure because people are scattering. So he just, you know, it's, it's just a little bit more time than he should have waited and he fails his test and Shmuel is angry at him. And Shmuel comes and says, "You because of this, your, your children will not inherit the, uh, the kingship. That's very sad. Meantime, that that conversation ends, so we don't know, like what was the reaction to that. Meantime, right, Shoal counts his people, and this we see in chapter fourteen. There are six hundred people left, so you can imagine they're facing an army, right? And it says that there are uh, thirty thousand chariots, six thousand horsemen, and infantry like sand on the seashore. They're facing an absolutely massive, intense army. And um, and they we have 600 men. And then we're told that in addition to that, in addition to that, they have no weapons. The end of chapter 13 tells us that the Philistines did not allow them to make weapons. And in order to sharpen their farming implements, they either, either had to go to the, the Plushti. Let's see, where's that map? Right, the, the Plushti area is over here, basically. So if you take a look, this whole coastline is Plushti territory. So all the Jews that are farming over here have to come down to the Philistines and do their uh, sharpen their farming implements there. And there's nobody with weapons. So if we go back here, at the end of chapter 13, we find out that none of the Jews have weapons except Shoal. And Yonatan, they have swords. And it's quite an incredible situation. There they are, 
Nobody has except Shelly Yonatan, and the Plishtim are on the move. So we've kind of used chapter 13 as a setup. It's set up to uh, show you the weakness of the Jewish position at this time. Very poor, poorly equipped army, very tiny army, impossible numbers, and the people are panicked, running away and hiding. So it's not a good situation. Now, Parak Yudala opens with this, Pasuk Aleph, it was on that day. So first of all, that day is introducing a very exciting day, a day that's going to go down in history. And we're being told, Yonatan Ben Shol, we're giving him his full yifas. He's going to be doing something. This is going to be a great day. And we begin with the action that Yonatan says to his armor bearer, the Na'ar no love. let's go across over to the Plishti situation, the Plishti Matzav, their camp. That's over there. Mabel Allah. Allah is like you're pointing. He's pointing over there. And he does not tell his father. Hi. Hi, Paris. <laughs> okay, he doesn't tell his father. So we at this point, I want to just mention one thing. We mentioned that there's a, a deepening difference of opinion and rift between um, Yonatan and his father. And we see here, he does not tell his father. The question is, why doesn't he tell him? So there's varying opinions about that. Possibly he's afraid that his father will stop him. He wants to do this and he's not interested in interference. And he doesn't agree with his father. Back in chapter 13, he kills the Pushti overlord and you know and Shoal basically takes the rap for it but he doesn't want anyone to stop him it's also possible to say that Yonatan doesn't really think you know doesn't really know what's going to come out of this escapade and it's better to just keep it you know on the quiet then we go back after that introduction we're being told what's happening here and then we're going to go backwards to set the scene we need to know a few things classic bet we're repeating the 600 men, just in case you forgot that that's his Nebi army, Nebuch, right? Just reminding you. And he's on one end of the hill under a pomegranate tree that's in a place called Migron. And it seems from what the Mepharshim explained that he's on one end of the, the hill and Yonatan's on the other end of the hill. Otherwise, he would have been aware that Yonatan is, is leaving. More information. The first part of this passage tells us that Kohen Gadol is there and that Urim Batum is there. In other words, we have a means of communicating with the Kaddish Baruch Hu in the camp with Shaul. Now, it's a little bit convoluted here. We're connecting to the, the, the name of the Kohen Gadol at this time is Achia. Achia is a, a grandson of Eli. He is a son of, a, he's a great son, a grandson actually. Achia is the son of Achitub. We don't know Achitub, but he is the brother of Ichabod. Now Ichabod, we remember from the end of chapter four and this tremendous tragedy at the end of when the Ark is captured, Eli dies and 
his daughter-in-law, Mrs. Uh, you know, uh, Pinchas, she also dies. And she gives birth to a son she calls Ikavod, dishonor. Now, Achitu is obviously Ikavod's older brother because, you know, the mother dies in childbirth. So Achitu is the oldest son, probably of Pinchas, who's the son of Eli, who is the Kohen Hashem Shiloh. Shiloh doesn't exist anymore. So the Kohen Hashem and Shiloh is Eli. And this Achitu, who's the grandson of Eli, has a son named Achia. The curse of the house of Eli has not taken effect yet. Achia is, uh, seems to be a good guy. And he is in place in this camp with the Urim Betumim, with the breastplate. Now, Gimel is also telling us, The nation also doesn't know that Yonatan went. So it's not just Shaul. Yonatan takes his armor bearer and he, he goes with him. He makes this whole plan and it has nothing to do with anybody else. It's possible that Yonatan doesn't know what the outcome is and he just wants to like, you know, see what he can, what he can do and what's going on. Now, I just want to point out here in Pasuk Aleph, Yonatan ben Shaul, right? And here, Yonatan, Later on, we're going to see that he gets a hey, Vasikvav, Yehonatan, right? And, right, it goes on, Yehonatan and Chet. So basically, there's a number of things you could say about that. It could be we're saying Yehonatan and Yehonatan, it's just variations on a theme. But if you carefully look through the, the Sefer, which I did, <laughs> you could see that he is called Yonatan up until chapter 18, except for a couple of sukkim here was called Yonatan. Now, generally speaking, when a hey is added to someone's name, we consider that to be an extra measure of godliness. So if we're giving him the um, the hey, it's, it's an indication of something. And he doesn't get it again until chapter 18. When chapter 18, he begins to prove his loyalty to David, even at the expense of his own position, and then you see that that's also, he gets there a, an extra hay, an extra measure of godliness. Now, we're also being told a little bit about the geography of the area. Okay, between the passages that Yonatan wanted to pass to the Plishti uh, camp, there was a shame. Now, a shame is, is a two. Shane Hasela is describing a kind of uh, rocky, sloping um, crag that juts up, juts out, and looks something like a tooth. So there is a one on the side closer to the Philistines and one on the side closer to the Jews. And they were um, prominent enough and important enough uh, geographical locations, but they were given names. One was called Botsets and the other was called Sene. And they seem to mean, according to the Tagrum, Botsets means slippery and Sene means uh, well trodden on. In other words, these were, these were not simple cliffs. Now, I have something I want to show you, if you'll bear with me for just a minute. I hope this will work because I never tried this. It's a little bit of a video. Okay, and this is, uh, I, I'm going to send you the link to this because this is like really terrific. There's a guy 
who went around Israel researching places and people who were um, involved in what seemed to be miraculous events. And the second thing that he discusses is this, what he calls the miracle at Miflas, which is where we are. And he, this is actually footage at Mihmas. So I said, I really want to show it to you. Um, and let's see if that will work. The miracle at Mihmas. This place called uh, the Valley of Mihmas. And this is a historical place where you, we can see, according to the Bible, the big rocks, Sine, and the other big rock, Potets. And here we have a living stories, a living history coming out of this place. I'm also meeting historian Yehuda Noblach, who has studied the events that took place here. Babismas used to be the main way of going from Jericho to Jerusalem. The most recent story is... Uh... Okay, not to go into this too much. I'll send you the link to this because it's actually fascinating. But I wanted you to see the topography, actually what it looks like now. It's like this incredibly rocky place and on the other side of those rocks, right, in the Mehmas area are the Philistines. And in, on this side, in Geva, we have the Jews. So we have a real problem. And what Yonatan is saying, well, let's, let's go over there and check it out. Now, this, this little video that I'll send you a link in the chat you know, dramatizes the whole thing. It's kind of fun if you go through the, the story to watch it dramatized. And there's a fascinating PS to that story, which uh, I, I don't have time to tell you about, but you'll get a chance to watch the video. It's about half an hour. It's very, very, very interesting. Um, true stories. Okay, so there's these craggy rocks. So you have to understand, there, there's two hills. One hill is where the Jews are. One hill is where the Plishtim are, and in between is a valley. But the valley, as you saw from that little video, the valley is really rocky. And there's a lot of up and down. So one of the Mifmas, one of them is slanting from the north opposite Mifmas, and one is by Geva. So in other words, he's going to have to, if he's going to be uh, going across this valley, he is going to have to be crawling up and down these rocky clips. Now, Pasukva brings us back to the action. So in other words, we sort of, Pasukalop, we started hearing by Yoma Yonatan. You're going to keep hearing by Yoma Yonatan. And we had a pause, a parenthesis, telling us that the Kongadol is there, that Shul has no idea what's happening, that the people don't know what's happening, and the topography, topography is terrible. Now we get back to the action. Pasukva, by Yoma Yonatan, and Lanat, Pasei Kailav. Now, it's interesting here to remind ourselves of Shaul at the beginning of his journey in chapter nine. Shaul had also a Nar that went with him. And also Shaul uh, inspired tremendous loyalty in the Nar. There was an interesting interplay between Shaul and his Nar, mutual respect and help. And you see here also, Yonatan inspires the same kind of unswerving loyalty and respect. And it's quite uh, an amazing um, compliment to both of these men. And he says to him, let's go across to the situation, to the camp of these uncircumcised ones. Now, Ari Lim literally means uncircumcised, but it's used here as an insult. 
and it's used especially as an insult for Philistines. And this um, this is like, you know, for you to say that about someone, it's a very big put down. So one of the things Yonatan is trying to do is trying to encourage his his youth by saying, you know, they're like, they're 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 barbarians, they're uncircumcised. Ulai, he says, and this is where uh, you understand why he gets his hay here. Maybe God will do for us. And the implication being God will do something special for us. He will do a miracle for us. Because Hashem doesn't have any restrictions on saving us. It doesn't matter for a lot of people or a few people. And here we see the godless of Yonatan. Yonatan is an incredible human being. His faith is unshakable. And he says, you know what? I could do anything. There's only two of us, but who knows? Who knows? And who really does know? So our first lesson from this section is this incredible bitachon that you have to have that's just, uh, you know, inspiring to see that. And you see the the response of the armor bearer to that tremendous bitachon, Pasig Zayim. Ayomalo no seke love. Asek halasher b'lvabecha, netelach, and the Nosei, the armor bearer, the Nosei Kelim said, you do whatever's in your heart, go your way, turn your way, I am with you like your heart. Whatever you do, Yonatan, I am there for you. And this is what I meant about unswerving loyalty. It's quite um, inspiring. Right now he's this godly person. Now he calls them Anashim. Don't let's underestimate the Philistines. Let's go over to them. We will reveal ourselves to them. Yonatan does something here, which is highly controversial. I'm going to spend a few minutes on it because it's actually quite fascinating. He says, this is what we're going to do. We're going to show ourselves, which is not difficult because they are up on the mountain and we're going to be in a valley and they're going to see us approaching. So as soon as they see us, we're going to see how they react. Now, one thing that could happen, if they'll say domu. Now, dome, Shemesh on dome, the sun stood still. Dome could mean uh, be silent or it could mean stand still. Wait. Stay there. Wait. Ad till we come to you. If they say we're coming out to you, wait there for us, then we are go, we are not going. We're not doing anything. We're not going to challenge them. But if they say you guys come up here, we're gonna go up because Hashem has given them in our hands. And that is the sign. Now, watch what happens, and then we'll go through this whole discussion because it's quite complicated. And they reveal themselves to the Pushti camp. But Yahu pushed him. Mockery, the first line of uh, of the Pushtim is, look, the Jews. Remember, we talked about Ivrim. It's like... Um, uh, parallel to calling somebody Jew today as opposed to an Israeli. Look, the Jews are coming out of their holes where they hid. And that's kind of really demoralizing because they knew that the Jews had run away and hidden. Look, the Jews, some Jews coming out of their holes. Pasuk in bed. 
ויענו אנשי המצבה את יונתן בנושא כלב, ויאמרו עלו אלינו ונודיע אתכם דבר. And they said, after they first made fun of them, they said, come on up here, we're going to tell you something, which of course is code for come up here and we'll kill you, right? But the davar is also very significant, a davar. Come up here, we'll tell you a davar. Now, if you notice that in Pasuket Beis, we have a pay here that's called a pitka be'emtsa pasuk. We have like a paragraphic indication in the middle of a pasuk. Usually that is separating speech that's uh, chol and speech that's kodesh. So when the plishtim are speaking, that's the whole part. They say, come on up here, we're going to kill you guys, come on up. <laughs> right? And Pasek, the second half of the Pasek, Yonatan speaks, El Miriyoma, Yonatan no sekelev, Aleich haraiki natanan Hashem biyad Yisrael. And Yonatan says, follow me, we're going to go up because Hashem has given them into the hand of Israel. They follow the signal, and Yonatan says, okay, this is a sign God has given them into the hand of Israel. Before we go on, we do have to examine this. This is a very, very complicated discussion, because the question that the Gemara raises is, Yonatan allowed to do this? So I want to show you inside. This is the complicated source. The Gemara in Hulin, 95b. Ba'omer, Rav. Rav said, Kol nachash she'eno keliezer eret Abraham b'kiyonatam ben she'ol eno nachash. Very, very difficult. Let's just go back to the, the original Pasuk in Vayikra. Lo tochlu adam, lo tenachashu lo tonenu. We have a clear prohibition we shall not eat over the blood, and you shall not um, do divination, and you shall not uh, do omens. Now, Rashi here explains eating over the blood, which we're going to have later in this parak. One must not eat from the flesh of holy uh, sacrifice. Maybe we'll come back to this. Acting on the base of omens, nichush. Now, in modern Hebrew, lenachesh is to guess. But the prohibition that we're talking about is divination. Right, um, those who interpret the sounds or actions of a weasel or birds as omens. Right, we're going to look at this further. And Lona Taonanu is from the Mila Ona, from season that we shouldn't say. Okay, this is a you know Friday the Thirteenth. This is a bad season and this kind of thing. So then the Gemara comes along and says, any divination that's not like El, that's not like Eliezer and Yonatan is not divination, and. It's a very, very confusing Gemara because uh, Rabbis, look at the English here, any divination that is not like the divination of Eliezer or the divination of Jonathan, right, is not divination. What do we do with this? Does that mean Eliezer and Yonatan were not allowed to do what they did? That that's real divination? And we have a very, very serious problem interpreting this story. Like how, how do we do, how do we do that? Okay. So, um, okay, this is the Rambam. Now, the Rambam is basically bottom line halacha, and the Rambam explains what he considers divination. The Rambam takes the Gemara very literally, goes right according to the Gemara, and says, this they're not allowed to do, they did it, they're not allowed to do it. And he says, it is forbidden to practice soothsaying. What is meant by a soothsayer? 
if you say, my bread fell out of my mouth, I dropped my stick, then I can't do what I was planning to do because it's bad signs, you know, like a, a fox passed on my right side, I'm going to meet a deceiving person, I can't do that, or I hear a bird, okay, it's not going to do that. You know, and we do all these things. If you think about it, we have the oh, shtick, right? You know, if your mirror breaks, so that's a bad sign. If you walk under a ladder, it's a bad thing. All these superstitions that people have, right? You know, um, people have lucky rabbit's feet and I don't even know what, all sorts of things. If I, if I, uh, I see a black cat, I shouldn't go. This is all divination. So let's, Let's think about that in relation to what Yomotan does. And if a person says, sets up omens for himself, if this happens, I'll do this. If it won't happen, I won't do it. Like Eliezer, all this is forbidden. Okay, anyone who does these things is liable for lashes. Okay, okay. now what, what are we going to do with this very strange Rambam and the very strange Gemara? Let's go back here. Rashi doesn't say it this way. Rashi says like this. If they say, wait there, this is a sign, right? If they say, wait, we're coming out to you, that means their hour is successful. They are feeling really, really good about themselves. They're coming out to get you. But if they say, you come here, Rashi says, they're scared and they don't want to leave their place. Okay, now let's examine and understand what we're talking about here. Rashi is saying that what Yonatan is doing is not divination. What Yonatan is doing is he's giving a very rational sign by which he measures the morale of the Plishti army. In other words, if the Plishti are afraid to leave their situation, that means they're actually very nervous. They're very nervous. If you recall, when we studied Shoftim, we had a very similar situation with Gidon. Only there, God tells him what to do. God says, Gidon, go down and listen to the Midianites talking. And the Midianites, you know, are talking to each other. And one of them says, I had this crazy dream that a loaf of barley bread knocked down a tent. And the other one says, that's a clear sign that the Jews are going to win. First of all, the fact that they're talking about, you know, uh, the Jews winning is already a sign for Gidon that they are fearful. And then all the other things that go around, along with the story of Gidon, you have a similar idea here. In other words, Yonatan is not playing games here. He's not saying, oh, if I see a black cat, I'm going to go. If I, you know, if my bread falls down, I won't go. He's saying, if the Plishtim are willing to come out after us, they are in a good position. It's not the time to attack. But if the Plishtim are with their all their might and all their numbers and all their army, if they're not leaving their position, that means they're afraid. God has made them fearful and God will help us. That's the Rashi. Now, let's go back to Eliezer. We all know the story of Eliezer, right? So Eliezer says, if the girl will give me a drink and also all my camels, that's the girl. Now, again, the, the Gemara appears to be saying that's a sin. And the Rambam seems to be saying that's a sin. But if we interpret what he says as a logical sign, he's saying, 
I must have a balat chesed, an extraordinary balat chesed for Yitzchak to marry. And therefore, this will be the test. Is she going to give 10 thirsty camels enough water to satisfy them? And that's a lot of water. And she's the balat chesed I was looking for. In other words, Eliezer and Yonatan, and, and we have another proof that they're not sinning, and that is that God helps them. Their works are just what they say. The Barbell and the Malden point out that in the case of Yonatan, they, the person could have said anything else. They could have not answered. But here, and this is how they interpret it, Yonatan wants to know that God's on his side. If they say what I want them to say, that shows that God is with me. Eliezer says, I want to see that God is on my side. If he goes along with this, then we're okay. Now, just one more idea I want to show you here. Okay. Actually, just may, maybe make a comment before I go to that idea. And that is that the commentators on the Rambam don't agree with him. The Rabbad, the Rambam David, and the Kesed Mishnah with Yosef Cairo, they say, no, really, it's only divination if it's irrational. If there's a logic to it, that's not divination. That is not a problem. That's not the, right? And then the Rabbad says, like, how can you say that? God help them. If God wouldn't want to help them, if God thought they sinned, they wouldn't have helped them. And here's a beautiful thought from the Svarnu on the story of Eliezer. So what the Sparna was saying here is that Yonatan, I'm sorry, Eliezer was davening. He wasn't divining. He was davening, please Hashem, help me here to get this result. And right? The Sfarna makes a very important point, and I think this goes to the heart of the whole controversy. He says, if a person says, right, um, it should be this way, it should be that way, Right, and he makes that a sign for himself, then that's a problem, that's divination. But if he says, please Hashem, let it go this way, and he davens, that's not divination, that's davening. And I think that we can extract a very important lesson from this because, you know, when we are going about our lives, right, whatever we do that seems to place trust and anything that's different than Hashem, that's the problem. In other words, if you say, well, you know, I'm going to wear this little, you know, red string and that's going to be my protection. Well, I don't know. You're putting your protection in the red string. Anything that you want to um, increase your bitachon in Hashem, that's okay. It has to be for Hashem, and not for putting any power in anything. So I hope this was clear. This is a very, very controversial thing, but particularly difficult piece of Gemara. Okay, coming back to it.
Okay, so the Plishtim answer the way he wants, showing him that Hashem is on his side. Pasukim Gimel, Bayal Yonatan al Yadzav al Raglav, Benosek Helav Acharav. And Yonatan goes right into action. He goes up on his hands, on his legs. You have to picture, if you saw the picture that I sent, showed you, you when you rock climbing, you need your hands and your feet because you're, you're, you have to, you know, balance yourself. Rashi says, with all his strength and at a run. And his armor bear is coming after him. And they fell. And they fell before Yonatan and the armor bearer is finishing them off. Probably Yonatan is knocking them down and the guy, the armor bearer must have the sword and is finishing them off. But to hear Makar Mishana Shemika Yonatan in no seke love, Kesrim Ish Kibachatimane, Seven Seven, another really very, very difficult phrase. Okay, what does it mean? Chatsima ana, right? Half of a furrow that a pair, semen is a pair in modern Hebrew, a cute couple is called it semen chemet, right? A pair of oxen can plow, and this is a measure of land. It's a little bit difficult to interpret this. We're going to go with Rashi. Rashi says, right, this is a measure of land, right, that is showing you their great bravery because it's a small area of land and the people were close to each other. They could have helped each other, but you see that Yonatan and his armor bearer prevail. So Yonatan and this guy, two people with one sword climb up over one cliff and over another cliff, they get to the side of the Philistines. The Philistines see them coming and cannot seem to pull themselves together to make a proper reaction, and they kill 20 Philistines. And there's a great trembling going on. There's a, a tremendous sort of fear that seizes the plishtim, right? The Plishtik army was huge. There were different parts of it. There were the Mashchit, the grading parties. There was the standing army. There was the, 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 the charioteers and the, and the horse. Every part of them felt this fear. And this is a fear inspired by God. But to Gaza-Aretz, the land shook. But to heal her came. it became a trembling of God. And here the Refreshim kind of differ. Does this mean that the there was an actual earthquake because the Tirgaz Arat sounds like an actual earthquake, or that it actually felt like an earthquake. In any event, the Plishti camp is in a complete disarray. This the the Mabim says that the um, attack of Yonatan and the armor bearer was right between two parts of the camp. And they came up there and both parts thought they're being attacked. So they were able to do what they needed to do. The Das Mikra has a very interesting thought that Das Mikra says, they saw Yonatan and the armor bearer as a diversionary tactic. So they went out the other direction looking for the actual army, which wasn't actually there. So anyway, you interpret it, this is a great miracle. This is from a Kaddish Baruch Hu. Two people are getting this whole army crazy. And 
ויראו את סופים לשאול בגבעת בנימין, והנה ההמון נמול וילך בעלו. So Shaul, on his end, has scouts. Sophim are scouts, like Herod Sophim, Mount Scopus. They're looking out, and they see this, this, this you know, the Plishti army is sort of like melting, namogu, and they're going, and they're scattering, and something's happening. They come to Shaul, they say, listen, we got a, something going on there. And he tells his people, pick to It's very interesting. This is Shaul's instinctive reaction is, who's not here? Who started this? And he probably knows his son is a little bit of a troublemaker and he sees Yonatan's not there. Remember the Kohen Gadol, remember. Bring forth the Aron. Let's ask God. And there was there. It was there. We established that back in verse 3. This is a very strange Pasuk. And uh, it's interpreted different ways, but we're going to go with this. And it was... While Adi Bear, while Shaul was talking to the Kohen, the Ham Hamon, the, the Balagan that's in the Plushti camp is getting worse and worse and worse. And Shaul says, okay, take back your hand. It's a very, very uh, troubling situation. First of all, we have here another pay, another stop in the middle. We have uh, comment on the action now. Things are getting, you know, very, very um, crazy by the Philistine. And Shaul says, okay, forget it. Picture this scene, okay? You are now standing in Shmon Esrei and, you know, the pressure's going on, something's going on, you say, okay, you know, excuse me, God, I gotta go take care of whatever it is I have to take care of. It's a very disturbing scene. And it's especially disturbing because if we go back to chapter 13, Shaul does the same thing. In chapter 13, he's waiting for Shmuel. Shmuel doesn't come. So he's like, well, I got to get the carbon going because I got to go fight the war. And here he's saying, you know, let's not ask God because, you know, it's clearly that I'm clear I got to go out to war. So we have a very big problem here. Shaul hasn't learned anything from his previous mistakes. And sadly enough, right, we can compare him to David later on in Shmulbet, right? Shaul asks God, should I go after the Philistine? Will you give them in my hand? And Hashem says, go. And they keep fighting. And then he goes back. And they're, they're pushing my back again. And Shaul asks God again. And God says, don't go up this time. It's kind of sad. The contrast is inevitable. Shoal is just impulsive and impatient and you know it seems very disrespectful. Sorry, but there there it is. He gathers everyone, they come to the war and they're killing each other. I just actually have a sense. This is my favorite biblical battle when the enemy kills each other. And, you know, the Jews just have to stand there and just, like, pick up their swords. 
because they've killed each other. And this happens also with Gidon in that famous uh, battle in chapter seven in Shoftim, where the Midianites kill each other. And now we have reinforcements. Now the Plishtim had taken Jews captive and brought them with them to serve them during the war. Possibly they were the blacksmiths that had been kidnapped. Possibly they were just ordinary Jews. And they were serving the Plishtim. But in the middle of the Balagan, the Jews said, well, no one's going to find out that I helped my own people because there's too much Balagan here. So all the Jews that had been slaves to the Plishtim went back to their own side. And all the Jews that had been hiding in the rocks and the crevices and the, and the crevices and the, and the caves, they hear that the Jews are winning. They heard that So they come out of their hiding places and they join. So now the Jewish army is swelling and there's going to be this tremendous uh uh, battle against the Philistine. So the, the war, there's our map, the war is moving westward. And we have this beautiful phrase that's going here from Mithmas, right? It's going westward to Beit Aven, back, chasing them back to their territory. And here we have a phrase that we've got. Back in the Chumash, God saved Jews on that day. Tremendous victory over the Philistines. And it started by Yonatan and his armor bearer. And now comes a little bit of a difficult situation. Because we have a... Um, we have this difference of opinion between Shaul and Yonatan about the conduct of this war, and it's become going to become very, very uh, strong here. And the men of Israel were pressured on that day. The people of Israel pressured. It was a tremendous. Uh, uh, rush. They didn't really plan on fighting a war like this, and they're rushing after the Philistines, and Shaul causes us an oath to happen. Curses the man who will eat bread, which means any kind of food, until the evening, and I will be revenged from my enemies. Now, notice the language. I will be revenged from my enemies. Go back to Yonatan, who says to his armor-bearer, right, God can save anyone, right? And if we if we get this uh, the correct sign, God give them our hand. There's a little bit something too personal with Shaul's like, I'm going to have revenge on my enemies, but the people go along with him. Everyone's fasting. Now you heard the famous expression. An army marches on its stomach. And as a matter of fact, the Rambam says that a, an army can take food. They can take food from orchards. This back in chapter eight, this is one of the things that Shmuel tells the people, you know, when you have a king, he's going to be able to take your food in the middle of a war. 
And in fact, there are problems. If the problems with kashas, they can be taken anyway. So the attitude of the Rambam is that halachically, you need to feed your army. And the commentator on the Rabbad, the Rabbad says, even if there's no danger, you cannot let your soldiers go hungry. But this is Shaul's declaration. And then we come to the famous episode. They come to a forest and there's a field where there's honey on the floor. Now, it's very strange, the honey on the floor, and everyone has a different opinion. Is it sugarcane? Neely, maybe you could tell us what kind of honey is on the floor. Is it beehives dripping down? It's all nice thoughts. It doesn't matter. There's honey. And they come, they see the honey, and they're fasting. And they come to this forest, and there's this flow of honey. Can you imagine? And no one will put his hand to his mouth with the honey because they're afraid of the oath. Yonatan did not hear this oath. And he takes the edge of his staff and he dips it in the flow of honey. And he comes, brings it back, he tastes the honey. Now you see there's a ketiv and a kri. The, the, um, the kri is the ta'orna, his eyes lit up. And the kri is vatarona, his eyes saw. So either way, in both senses, we're getting the sense that that little bit of honey, you imagine that you're like coming out of a fast and you just take a little bit of honey and how that can revive you, that sweetness of that. And it's amazing. Now, Yomitan must have been exhausted. He's gone through battle the whole day and we're coming towards the next night and this little bit of honey really revives him. And everyone's looking at him. Bayan doesn't mean he answered. Bayan means to speak up. And it could mean he answered also, but here it means he spoke up. He speaks up and he says, uh, By the way, Yonatan, your father made us swear that none of us would eat anything till evening. And the people are very tired. So is either an addition that this man is saying to him, like it was a very hard day because of this oath, or that could be editorial comment of the Navi here. But either way, Yonatan does not take this well. And Yonatan said, my father really messed up. He sullied, muddied the land. Look that my eyes lift up because I tasted a little bit of honey. But if the people had eaten today from the the, the shalal, the, the plunder of their enemies that they find, we could have made a much bigger blow against the plishtim. Now, this is a very important uh, point in this story. Yonatan is now openly 
declaring complete disagreement with his father. And we have to ask ourselves, it's like, is that a proper thing to do? And uh, maybe he should not have done that, okay? On the other hand, on the other hand, he's very disturbed by what Shaul has done. Achar, this word, to it's like taking mud and putting it in clear water. What what is he doing? There's a little bit of honey. Look what it did for me. Look what real food. If you we have all the stuff from the Philistines, if we had taken some of that stuff, we would have been much stronger in a much better position to continue this fight. So the Chazal talk about this and say he's actually there's actually a great difference of opinion between Shaul and his father all along chapter 13 and 14. And it's going to deepen later on when they're on the opposite sides of the dubbing question. Yonatan says, I don't understand this. First of all, the Rambam, the halachic problem, right? The Rambam says you have to feed your army, even if you have to take food from people and, and you pay them back later, but you have to take food for the army. Even if it's not kosher, you have to feed your army. So this is what Yonatan is believing and his father is saying, no. On the other hand, this Hashkafic difference of opinion, because Hashkafically, Yonatan is saying, this is a time of joy. This is a time of nace. This is Gilish Hina, the Kashbar who's helping us revealing himself. We should be happy. He's celebrating. And Shaul is saying, it's a fast. I have to, you know, it, it's pressure, the enemies, and it's a time of trouble. And you have to dive in and you have to fast and you have to pray. Very, very different views of this. And you can think with who you agree with more, but it's it's it seems like the te the text is telling us that Shaul is messed up with this. And then we see how the, it develops. We're running out of time, but very quickly. They struck the Philistines from Mechmas all the way to Ayalon. That's heading west toward the airport, toward Tel Aviv. The people are very tired. By this time, they're very, very exhausted. Now night has fallen, so the oath is over. They is the same kind of language that's used for a vulture. They swooped on the plunder and they took the, the sheep and the livestock and, and all the neighbor car and they they shechted them and they ate on the blood. So we don't have time to go into this complicated sugya. What was the problem here? But if you remember, I showed you in the Vayikra, right? Lotahu Adam and Rashi says, you not, shouldn't eat from the flesh of holy sacrifice before the sprinkling of the blood. You shouldn't eat before the blood is gone out of it. Many, many ways of interpreting this. But we'll go for the simplest one, right? They were too hungry. They were too exhausted to wait for the blood to come out from the meat. And they ate before it came out. Now, there's other explanations, but we're going to go with that one because it works with what happens after. But they said, Shaul, the people are sinning, they're eating on the blood. You've done treasonously. Bring to me a big rock. Spread out. He says, spread out, bring me the meat here, and we will shecht here. So the Chazal say that Shaul's knife was actually a knife. His 
uh, uh, he had a sword in the merit of this, and he made the proper shita, and he saved them from sitting. Very uh, big merit for him. He builds it on altar, and then he wants to continue fighting. And all of a sudden, he reminds himself that he should really be asking God. We'll fight them all night long. The people are like, whatever you say, Shalom, they're totally with him. We're going to fight all night and we'll just finish the push them for once and all, for all. But Yomar Kohen, Nikova, hello, we're looking at the coach. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, let's say it's God here. Excuse me? And there's a pit again, Pitchab Emta Pasuk. Shaul says something, and now the Kohen says something holy. Let's ask God. Shaul says, Shall I go after the Philistines? Will you give them in my hand? And he gets no answer. Now, if you get no answer, you might want to say, Maybe last time I was disrespectful when I stopped the inquiry to God in the middle and went out to fight the war. Maybe. But Shaul's reaction is, He says, somebody sinned. He doesn't think it's him. And let's see who did it. And he makes, and this is the second time in this story that he makes a very rash vow. I'm going to have to keep you a few more minutes, a very long parak, so bear with me. Because as God lives, who saves Israel, if the sinner is my own son, Yonatan, he's going to die. And no one says a word because everyone knows that Yonatan ate the honey. That was the first foolish vow that Shaul made, that no one should eat. And now he's vowing that he's going to kill Yonatan if he's a sinner. Okay. So he says, let's finish this. Me, me and Shaul, me and Yonatan will be on one side. We'll have the lottery. The lottery we've seen before, going through the Urim Betumim and seeing how this uh, plays out. They make a lottery and Shol and Yonatan are, are taken in the lottery. Let's see if Shol and Yonatan and Yonatan is brought forward. What did you do? Now, the question is, is Yonatan speaking straight here? Is he saying, I actually tasted a little bit of honey at the edge of my staff, a little bit of honey. Okay, kill me. It sounds like Yonatan is like trying to get across to his father that this is ridiculous. And of course, he didn't know. I'm like, show third, third foolish vow, classic memdalit. He doesn't back down. He says, okay, Yonatan, you have to die. Three times, Shaul makes a rash vow, and our lesson here is don't make rash vows. Oh, what are you talking about? Yonatan is the one 
who made this great victory. He's our hero. Chalila, God forbid. By the life of God, there's not one hair of that man's head fall to the ground. He worked with God today. And they redeemed Yonatan and he did not die. Okay, Shol gives up here. Classic man. Okay, um, a couple more things. We still have a few psukim left, but let's just talk about this whole lottery situation. First of all, what makes Shol think that he can kill Yonatan for um, transgressing his vow? And that goes back to the same problem that we had in the time of the Pilegish um, Begiva, back in Shoftim. There's a Pusik at the end, the last uh, uh, Pusik in Bayikra, actually, that whole section there, that there is a but uh, if there's a cherem, it has to die. So it's been interpreted by other people besides Shaul, saying that the king has the right to make a cherem on somebody and kill them. Right? What? The Ramban has a whole discussion on this. We simply don't have time for it. Um, I, I urge you, if you have time, to go look, find an English Ramban, check out the end of uh, Bayikra, this whole thing. But what is Shaul's mitigating, uh, Yonatan's mitigating factors? Number one, you he's a showgag. He didn't know about the vow. Number two, it was a tiny taste. Number three, it did revive him. So we can say that there was a big problem with the whole oath. How did they save him? And the, the Gemara goes into a discussion of this, and they basically say, right, um, you know, if the bow is off, then you don't have to really, um, you don't have to really do anything special. You could do Hataras the Darim, you, you make a Mate the Neder, or they gave a amount of money in place of Yonatan, but they saved Yonatan. And here you see that three times Shoal makes a vow and none of these things are fulfilled. And the people vow here and they are fulfilled. So we've learned here that it's a very big problem to make a rash vow. And always, always, you know, in, in Judaism, we always have such an emphasis on what we say, how important it is to watch what you say. And here we have a, a, a rift opening up between Shoal and his son and the way they look at the world. Now, why doesn't the Umbatum just like skip this if he's really innocent? Because it has to be shown to the people, right, that Yonatan is innocent. They have to prove that and prove that to Shaul. And we might say that the reason the Umbatum did not answer Shaul is not because of Yonatan, that's what comes up, because Shaul himself wasn't properly respectful. Now, the rest of this uh, Perek talks about the career of Shoal and it's in the, in the way that usually sums up a king's career. He he fought all the enemies. He was a really great soldier and he did uh, valiantly and he struck a Amalek, which is going to be next week's chapter. And he, these are his sons and these are his daughters and this is his wife and this is his commander in chief. And this is, uh, you know, his family and the war against the Philistines was strong, and Shoal to take any good man and make him his um, part of his army. So it's sort of 
there's a very interesting thing going on at the end of chapter 14. We have this summation of Shaw's career as if he's leaving the scene, but he's not. In chapter 15, we're going to see about that war with Amalek, and we're going to go into uh, more, and that's sort of going to be expanded on next time. But here we see, unfortunately, we see that Shaul has certain issues, uh, personality issues, and halachic and philosophical issues that make him a little bit of a problem as a leader. On the other hand, the Kodesh Baruch who saves the Jews with, by the hand of Yonatan, who's a great warrior, a great hero, and uh, a great favorite of the people. And we see the beautiful uh, Emuna and Bitachon that he shows. And that's um, a tremendous thing for us to take away, inspiring. You know, stop the screen share. Sorry to keep you late. Okay. All right. And um, thank you. Yeah, it's a very long parak. It's very hard to get through the whole thing. And I, I didn't actually get through the whole thing. <laughs> Just in the last few seconds, uh, we'll maybe go over it next time. But there's a lot, so much in there. Very, very long parak. Okay. Anyone have any questions, comments, thoughts? Um, maybe I'll, uh, I, um, there was one question I'm trying to remember what I wanted to ask you. Um, I was talking about the, 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 the fact that Hashem didn't answer show, like, um, it like sounds like giving the cold shoulder, like, you know, it, it's a strange thing because we, it's we, weird. We establish, he goes through the whole lottery, like Yoshua did with Acha, he goes through the whole lottery. And what comes out of it is that Yonatan was taken, he was captured in the lottery, it was um, the guilty party. But it was the people said, Well, you know, he didn't know, and he's our hero, and you can't do this. So, if that's the case, so then if that's what came out of it, then why was it necessary to go through it? And it seems to me, and the Arbarbanel talks about it also, I'm not, you know, I didn't make this up. I'm pretty sure the Arbarbanel, he says, Hashem is not pleased with Shaul, and he's giving him this hint also. You know, I don't want to answer you. You you were Mizalzel, you, you took the whole Orm Batuman thing lightly, so why, lightly, mm. so why should I answer you? Right. So it's, it's just like a, a human being uh, like you know you don't kitsu. it's an interesting it's symbolism human reaction yeah like giving the cold shoulder if someone kitsu. It's, yeah it's, it's it's, it's, no but if you don't respect right here the, the problem that I have with Shaul and this Perak is that in Perak Yud Gimel he he's also impatient. He doesn't wait for Shmuel. And Shmuel says, you were acting foolishly, and now I'm going to, your, your children are not going to inherit the kingship from you. And even after that, he still is impatient. And, and so the whole way that Shoal approaches the war is, it's very ordinary, how the, a war should look. You don't have enough soldiers, this is a problem. You don't have enough <clears throat> equipment, this is a problem. And Akash Baruch was taking this whole situation and showing everybody, no, 
Yonatan is exactly right. And Hashem makes it makes the difference between the Polishti army and the Jewish army so incredibly great that you have to see that God interfered. You can't you can't say, oh well, you know. And we always had this problem. You had this problem in 1967 after the Six Day War, right? So it was clearly miracle after miracle. But that's if you have that kind of hashkafa. And there were many, many Israeli generals who said, well, no, we just have a great army. And mm -hmm. then in 1973, we found out what kind of great army it was. And it was this, it was a terrible, terrible time in 1973. It took, uh, you know, a lot of, we lost yeah. a lot of people. It was a terrible, war. almost lost that war. My cousin broke who saved us, you know, in the nick of time. But it's it's that it's that hubris, you know. That's a, it's a Greek word meaning um, arrogance. It's that feeling like, yeah, you know. So Shoal is looking at everything in lens of, you know, we have to have enough people, we have to have enough equipment, and Hashem is saying, well, I I need someone who who has faith. You don't have faith, and yeah. that's uh, and that's really. That's the bottom line with Shaul. He's just, you know, going his own way, and he's not showing the betachal that he has to show. Okay. I once heard from Daddy that there's very few miracles. Recently, actually, I heard that very few miracles that are um, a really a nice nigla, like right that happened right in front of your eyes. Most nisan, like you said, it's a six day war. When you think about it, it doesn't make sense. But it's not like you saw, you know, like the seed split or something like that. It was a miracle, but you didn't see a miracle. You right. have to be a believer to understand that. Um, anyway. The whole the whole Megillah Esther is that kind of situation. People being right. in the right place at the right time. And yeah. it's just it's 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 what we call Hester Punim. God is not giving you an open miracle. Just like right. Esther in this place and Mordecai in this place and Haman in this place yeah. and everything yeah. combines so, together yeah. to to work, but it's not like like you said, it's not like the splitting of a sea. So those kind of open miracles, you don't see so much. Yeah, so you can always have the the non-believers that can say, well, it was you know he happened to have the thought the Jewish girl was really pretty. That's why he married her. He happened to have thought, you know, and and. Mordecai happened to have stood there and understood the language. You know, there's always people that can say that. If you believe, you understand. The Christian went up on the Golan Heights at the end of 67, and I don't remember his name, a Christian um, evangelist, and he was with Matagur, and Matagur was a famous general. I think Matagur eventually committed suicide, if I'm not mistaken. Matagur was showing him the Golan Heights, and the Golan Heights, I mean, you know, how do you capture heights like that? Like, how does that even happen? So the Christian is saying, this is such a miracle that you captured this. And Montagur is saying, no, it's not. You know, it's, uh, we have a great army. And that's like such a hilarious, <laughs> it's so terrible. It's a famous story, Montagur. And that, that was an attitude of many, many of the Israeli generals who couldn't, you know, they couldn't, give God any credit. They could not give God any credit. 
And so it sort of blew up in their faces. It's only six years later that we had to deal with the horrific Yom Kippur War. You kids don't remember it. I remember it. It was dreadful, dreadful, you know, and it was touch and go for a while. I was like, what were you thinking? It's the same army. It's only six years later. Here's your great army. Okay, thank you so much. Lesson to be and and yeah. that's where you see Yonatan's greatness. Is Yonatan's like, let's try it. Like you never know if God wants to help us, we'll help us. And the youth is such a big fan and such a big, you know. Loyal. I gotta go, Ma. It was great. Thank you. Have a good day. Bye. Bye, bye, sweetie. Good luck with everything. I bye. think we also have to go. It's getting. All right, I have to prepare my classes for tomorrow. Thank you. Mom, thank you for everything. All right. Take thank care. You. I hope I didn't rush her. I rushed her my way through this parrot because I was like so conscious that 52 psukim is like a lot. Yeah. <laughs> we did most of it. All right. Bye bye. Hey, Thanks. Bye -bye. Good night. Bye.